Welcome everybody to the podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host. This is the Disco Posse podcast with the one and only Andrew White. Dr. Andrew White is a senior fellow in management practice at the Said Business School of Oxford. This was a really enjoyable discussion where we talk about traits of leadership, really the transition from, you know, what we often talked about as traditional leadership, the Silicon Valley culture, startup culture in general, and what we can do. We also talk a lot about sustainability, the impact that we can have both personally and organizationally on on each other, on the world, literally on the earth. We cover a lot of very exciting stuff. Super excited because Dr. Andrew and his team are doing a lot of work and research. So we're going to have him back to talk about what's going on there. But anyways, I don't want to pre-podcast the podcast because it is literally just so much fun to listen to. And speaking of making this stuff happen and our impact, I am super happy because I've got great supporters who are impacting you and I'm hearing the good news. So I want to give a shout out to the folks over at Veeam who make this podcast happen. If you want to head and find out what you need for your data protection needs and how Veeam can help you, go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. They got you covered from cloud to on-premises, to physical servers, applications, SaaS, the whole gamut. So go out there, get it done, protect your assets. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and find out more. Speaking of also amazing supporters, holy heck, you're building a startup. You want to build a sales culture that actually can be impactful? Then do it with the Shift Group. So we are proud to be sponsored by The Shift Group. They're turning elite athletes into sales professionals with training and also helping you with your go-to-market strategy. So JR and the team at Shift Group are doing amazing stuff, really connecting fantastic people with fantastic opportunities. So if you've got an opportunity, you wanna fill your boots and get your sales machine rolling, do it with great people. So go to shiftgroup.io, find out more about that. And also go back and check out, uh, I had a great podcast with JR talking about what he and the team are doing. All right, this is Dr. Andrew Wright from Oxford, and he's a fantastic human. Enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Dr. Andrew White. I'm a senior fellow in management practice at Side Business School at the University of Oxford. I'm delighted to be here today with Eric Wright, host of the Disco Posse podcast. Great to be with you, Eric. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. White. It's one of those beautiful occasions where when I see a guest opportunity come up and your, your practices, your studies, and your research are in real alignment with a lot of the work that I've been exploring. So I am selfishly going to take a ton of lessons out of our discussion today, as will, luckily, a lot of folks who who do listen. So thank you for joining. If folks are brand new to you, uh, Andrew, if you don't mind, give a quick sort of bio on your background, and we'll we'll talk about some of the the research that you're working on, and and really, you know, what what folks can can take away as we think of the future of transformative leadership, which is 
becoming something we really had to be keenly aware of. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to be here as well. Um, so a little bit about me. I started life as an academic. I did a doctorate in innovation management, really looking at where ideas came from for successful businesses. Um, that was about 20 years ago. Um, I then started my academic career and very quickly I moved into leadership roles. The biggest of those was I was associate dean for executive education in the business school I'm currently in at Side Business School at the University of Oxford for 10 years. Um, and in my capacity there, um, we worked with thousands of leaders around the world every year. We launched a big digital platform um, that now is about 25,000 uh, people training with us or going through leadership programs. Um, and I got to know what was really going on. I didn't have time to teach. I didn't have time to research. Um, I sponsored a research project where we interviewed 150 CEOs back in 2015, 16. Um, but then after doing that job for 10 years, um, with all the complexities of running a PL and the HR stuff and the global business development, um, I really wanted to get back to teaching and research um, because I felt there was an agenda I wanted to pursue. And, and that agenda, if I put it in simple terms, is what do leaders need to be doing today? What do they need to be addressing? How do they need to be leading? With a particular focus on the, I think the time we're living in is critical. Between now and 2050, much of the science suggests that we're either going to be in an existential crisis due to the climate challenge or we're going to have solved it. And I think when you look back at humanity, we've got the creative ability, the entrepreneurial ability to have solved it. So I really wanted to know who are the leaders that are transforming businesses, starting businesses that are really having an impact on what the future looks like for, for humanity. And what does it mean to be a successful leader today um, in terms of shareholder returns, in terms of profitable growth, but also as, as we both know, you know, more is being asked of leaders. Um, and businesses don't exist in isolation just with their own competitors. They're actually part of a, a group of stakeholders that have or they have a stakeholder base that um, requires them to think about the impact they have on the world. So that's what I've done. I'm a host of the Leadership 2050 podcast. I have a Leadership 2050 newsletter on LinkedIn, which really focuses on these things. And I've begun the research um, that I wanted to focus on by looking at transformation. Um, and I'm in the midst of a, a major global study on that at the moment. Fantastic. Now, this is the, it's always the interesting thing. I, I think of it as the dichotomy of, of, of leadership in that you have both a fiduciary responsibility as well as a very human responsibility in leading people through change, but with the, the shareholder responsibility to bring you know, growth and returns to the the investors and, and ultimately the responsibility of the business. It is really an interesting challenge where we've we often see folks that are fantastic on one and struggle on the other, uh, and often why there's a leadership team, right? Like so, you have more sort of the COO who will be the driving the the functional business growth. And then the CEO is more sort of the vision and leadership, but the we've always hear, or at least we, because social media, you know, brings the noisiest voices forward. We hear about the the moment someone is a very strong leader, we immediately try to sort of find something wrong with them. Yes, in that they're so disconnected from the from the average worker within the organization. 
And it's, for me, it's, I look at it in sort of with a sadness because we need leaders to be doing something almost like sports heroes. You never want to meet your sports hero because they're probably not good people to get along with. They, they have this drive and this, a different thing that, that lets them be great at what they do. So when you look at transformational leaders as well, you know, really what, what do you see as sort of traits and, and, and how we're viewing those, those personalities? I mean, I think you've got two things going on currently in business. I think on the one hand, you're right. Um, the world has a challenge what, in terms of what I would say is the disconnection, particularly in large companies, between the salaries of those people at the top and the salaries at the bottom. And I think that adds to what you were talking about, that sense that they're not us um, and they're different and they live in a different world. And there's no doubt that that phenomenon is out there. But like many things in the world, I don't think it's one or the other. And I don't think it's black or white in that sense. Um, what I see is a, is a cadre of leaders who are really, and this is the ones I focus and I study, who are really understanding what it means to put humanity back at the heart of leadership. And I mean that in a number of different ways. Firstly, they understand their role is about fiduciary duty to shareholders and profitable growth and all of these things. But they also know that what they do and the footprint they have and the impact they have is far greater than that. And um, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is a company which I recently profiled called PaveGen, uh, which is a fantastic company. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in it as well. Um, but they created um, uh, paving slabs, indoor and outdoor you know, flooring, that when you step on it, generates electricity. So in the same way you have solar on the top of a building and that plugs into the building's electricity infrastructure. If you've got uh, buildings like hospitals or shopping malls where there's high footfall, they're even doing it in concerts, I think. Um, every time a person takes a step, electricity is generated. Now, that has huge potential for shareholder growth, um, huge potential for uh, profitable growth and all of those things. But actually, if that company does well, um, it's harnessing a source of electricity, which is our footsteps, which at the moment is just going to waste. Um, so to me, that's a great example. And, and the, the leaders there have got a real sense of how do you bring people on a journey? Um, so there's something about society and how do you bring people with you on a journey? There's something about the way they're leading. The research we've done on transformation, that the phrase we're using is about putting the humans at the center. Um, and what we're seeing is these leaders, if I could give you a bit of a, a, a picture in your mind, imagine a CEO with one arm and that arm represents line management, their hierarchy, their IT systems, their finance and all of that stuff, but it's tied behind their back and they have to use their other arm. And their other arm, the only skills they've got is the, their speech, their ability to listen, their empathy, their concern for people, their ability to draw out of people what their values are. And I think that's the secret weapon. Um, you know, most of them know how to do the other stuff, but the ones that can really not just inspire, but listen to what people's concerns are, what their values are in their employee base, but also in their customer base, and weave that into a vision, weave that into a purpose um, that's not some um, overly simplistic statement, but really why does this company exist? Who does it exist for? I, I think these two things of 
let's call it social impact or human impact and profitable growth and shareholder growth, they no longer become two separate things. They're embodied in a vision. They're embodied in individuals who are able to do both. And that is interesting. And, and I'll say when I when we hear transformational leadership, there's the, there's an implication that they're beginning at a place and carrying to a different destination, you know, and especially now, you know, when we see a startup come up, you can, I, I almost have to look at it with a, a grain of salt to so this idea that, well, they had, they've come from zero to one. So there's really the transformation is in what the platform or the company is achieving. But when you see leaders that especially are in an existing organization, you know, the, the, the sort of steering of a, of a, a cruise ship, it's a, there's a very different challenge I find. And look, when we look back on, you know, great books that we use today still to study, like built to last. And then if you look at the story, it's about most of them actually didn't last. <laughs> if you took it outside of the context of the five-year research term in which they researched the book, most of those businesses actually struggled greatly in the decade that followed, have you know continued, but not with high growth. So when you get to leaders of especially large organizations, Andrew, how, how does one stay empathetic yeah. when there's such a broad audience to have to, to listen to? I think it's a great question. And I think it's a question which has been rumbling for decades. Um, if we think of Polaroid and Kodak, of um, the video rental stores that didn't make the change, um, BlackBerry and some of these other companies. So I think what's changing is that the rate and the impact of disruption is pretty much affecting everybody. So it's, it's no longer something that comes out of the blue. It's no longer something that you're unlucky if you experience in a career. It's everywhere. But I think you put your finger on the challenge for the incumbents. Um, and I would describe it as this. There is a status quo which is all-consuming. If you think about the schedules that most leaders of those businesses have, they're probably starting at 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. Some of them are going through till... Um, very late in the evening, particularly if they're responsible for global activity and they're working across multiple time zones. Um, they're probably back getting on planes um, with the relentless travel schedule as well. And it's all consuming. They don't have the mental space. In a sense, they're addicted to the machine. Um, and the machine that demands continual returns, the machine that demands continual effort. The companies that I have seen that have broken this They've done something that I'm going to describe as a conscious disconnection from the status quo. They've had a CEO or another senior leader that has effectively said, we have to take 10 days out to think about the future. Not two days, not one day, but 10 days. Um, and we have to go somewhere. Um, and that is either to look at a set of emergent industries, um, spending time in nature, away from everything to give the human mind and, and heart and soul a chance to refresh and to think differently. Um, building a different group of suppliers around us. Um, but that, that notion of a conscious disconnection from a status quo, I think is such a powerful one for me um, because it's like an addiction. Um, there's an addiction to the returns. There's an addiction to activity. 
there's an addic addiction to processes um, where it's very hard to get space from that. Um, and those that are successful consciously disconnect. And I think in some ways it's becoming easier because the problem is becoming clearer. That if you don't do that, um, you're not fulfilling your responsibilities as a leader and you're not thinking about the next, um, certainly the next three years, five years, 10 years. So there's a need to go through some form of conscious process of disconnection and, and then think about what is the best place for us. And as I say, I would my recommendation if I was working with a firm, this is at least five days um and you know you need to put in place the infrastructure around you that allows you to take that time out um and to really spend the time sinking into why we exist separate from our current operation separate from how we currently work to think about what the future might look like to think about what a reinvention might look like um, and from that place then go back in and, and lead in a different way this is one of the the things that I've often, you know, I promoted even in in my own work and 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 my own teams, this idea of you know the the offsite, you know, where we we have to like visually disconnect from your day to day processes because you it's it's habit forming, right? We go to the office, we say we're going to go into the big meeting room, you know, and so what does everybody do? They bring their laptop, they pop their laptop open, you yeah. see them sort of looking at their screen and tapping away. So I would say like, no, 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 here's what it is. You sit at the table, you're, you're either in a hotel or somewhere else where it's quiet, or even if it's in an existing room, you have one person with a laptop, they're the scribe, yeah. they're on screen, so you can't see them, you make sure they're not on instant messaging and email. The rest of us, we have, you know, pad and paper and and really go through that disconnected discussion. And it can't be a half day. It's got to be something where you're taken away because there's nothing worse than you know somebody comes up and it's like, oh, I'm just going to go down and, and check on something or I'm going to check my email real quickly. But it's I mean, really it's a human behavior problem where we we feel like we're missing something. Yeah. And yet the I, irony is it's completely the opposite. Like you're 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 right. You are missing something because you're in you're involved in it every day. You're missing what you could be doing. And this is it's so hard to hammer that into people's minds that, that this is how they need to behave. I mean, a couple of points. I think you're absolutely onto something. I coach an executive once and they spoke about their iPhone. And they said they had more anxiety putting their iPhone down than they did when they had a baby. <laughs> um, and the coaching was about how long can you not go without holding the iPhone? Um, so we started off with a minute, we got to two minutes, we got to 10 minutes, we got to walking around the garden um, without the iPhone um, and what it felt like, because it was an addiction. Um, and I think there's a whole conversation around social media, which I don't think is the day's topic. Um, but what I would also say is I've run events where we gave people the option of handing over their mobile phone and the mobile phone being locked in a safe for a day. Um, now, you have to put some with executives, you have to put some infrastructure around that. So everyone lets their PA know there's somebody outside who has got a phone. They give them the number. And if there's an emergency, either in the family or in the in the business, they call that person and we commit, we'll bring the person out and they can get access to their device. What was really interesting, Eric, at the end of the day, we got to like 5 a.m. We said, right, phone's back. And a few of them said, no, no, can you keep them for a few more hours? We just <laughs> love this time of, of being able to think and be with ourselves and be with the bigger questions that this company is facing. 
Um, so could we extend this to 8 p.m. and then we'll have our phones back? Um, so to me, it was a really interesting, it, it was like taking a toy off a toddler at the beginning. Um, and at the end of it, there was a few people that didn't want it back um, because of what it gave back in terms of space and that space to reflect, which I think is so important today. Yeah, I, I mean, I often recommend people read uh, Cal Newport has fantastic writing on on the idea of, you know, there's sort of the digital minimalism and and deep work uh, is another fantastic book. And it's funny when I when I read Cal Newport, I sort of had this vision of some scholarly, you know, 65 year old gentleman. He's a young guy. He's probably gonna be my, my cousin. You know, he's, it's he's well studied on on the idea of, of this disconnection, but it is it's funny that going through that first part of, you know, putting it down and you hear people like go through, like you can see them change when they realize their phone is at their desk and they're in a meeting room. And I agree with you that, right. When we're doing it with purpose, we have to know like, Hey, I'm going to be offline if you need me. But I, another thing I do as well with work, I often, talk to people at this idea so if you ask for you know a week off the first thing that happens is people say what's your project schedule look like you know who else can we get to back you up like we we begin to wrap the machine around is it possible for you to get away now it's a very north american thing especially as well but if you say i've got to go to hospital you know, I've I've got a, a family issue. Immediately, the response from everyone on your team is no problem. Go for it. L you know, let us know anything we can do to help. Yeah. We've got you covered. Yeah. And I I often think about this and like why we should be able to have everybody should just have like a a big red button that they could just say this is my day. You know, I'm I'm taking the next three days and just like hit the button. No one questions it. Like we. We have this belief that we need to overly plan escape. And ironically enough, when you just do it, the machine rolls on. In fact, it gives you freedom of thought. Like when I go for a run, the moment that I can't look at my phone, especially on a bike, you know, because I have no headphones, I don't listen to any music. So I'm just out for five hours. It's the most incredibly creative time because you just have nothing to do but be introspective. And when I get back, I'm like typing and scribing and, and I have all these fantastic ideas have come because there's no access to distraction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you're making such a good point. So over the lockdown period, the first lockdown period, um, I got bored. I, I was literally like an express train that came to a halt. At that point, I was probably on a plane two or three times a month. Um, and um, so I had a lot of pent up energy. I still had work, the work schedule, but the social life and all the other things that we weren't able to do at that time. So I trained as a meditation teacher. So I'd, I'd meditated on and off for about 10 years. And I'd always had a hunch that this has got a real, a real purpose with leaders. Um, and it's for this exact reason that meditation forces you to just stop, focus on your breathing or any other of the techniques you're using. Um, and it's the dis that discipline. Um, and you suddenly realize after a while when the mind quietens that you go into a place of stillness. Um, and it's that stillness 
um, that real innovation, I think, can come from real cre creativity. And it's a it's another form of that separating from the machine, separating from the busyness, separating from the thinking mind, which I just think there's so many things in today's world has just put that on steroids. Social media being a big one with the like and dislike, um, which is the same as the Buddhist concept of attraction and you know being repelled from things. Um, but just bringing awareness to that um, takes us into a place where we realize that is not me. Um, my thoughts are not me. My work is not me. Um, and that subject object separateness is in essentially what I'm talking about when I'm saying a conscious disconnection from the status quo. Our company is not our current way of operating. Um, it's the current expression, but we're something bigger than that. Um, and what are we in service of? Um, and, you know, I think that so I, to me, these two things started to come into alignment. I've not fully finished that journey of exploration of bringing these two worlds together. And there's others working on this as well. Um, but to me, that's why I went there during during that lockdown period. When you think of that, that sort of forced introspection where we, we had obviously the last two years, you know, even like people still have trouble at this point thinking, remembering when it began. You know, it's yeah. been so long. And I remembered going through an airport in, in in February of of 20, you know, and and it was the beginning of being concerned that something could be happening, and but things weren't locked down yet. It was now, and and I remember like sitting in this airport, looking around, going like, "There's nobody here." Now I was in Calgary, Alberta, so there's generally not that many people, anyways. But it was still so vastly different than I'm used to, and and like you, I had traveled a lot as part of my my function, you know, for work, and I would get, I got those creative breaks. I would be my favorite thing was to be on a plane, I've got so many colleagues and they would say, oh, I really, I dread airplane Wi-Fi. And I said, do you know what's better than having to worry about your airplane Wi-Fi? Never getting it. You don't need it. You're in a bloody plane. Just disconnect. And the moment that I've got this white noise around me, I put in noise canceling headphones and I usually write a blog. I create presentations. I'm I get very creative because again, there's zero access to things. It's that sort of meditative, creative state that I get into. And I've heard a lot of people say that about planes, by the way, um, before Wi-Fi on planes, that planes were the planes as the busy executives went to rejuvenate, um, yeah. they could off, um, they had some of their best thinking, um, they could write, um, there was just not that interference. Um, um, yeah, so I think this, there was something about that, which hopefully we don't lose um, uh, with, the, with, with, with the planes Wi-Fi. But it definitely did change my, my work patterns and my creative patterns when I had none of that all of a sudden. And for, you know, it, it took a while. And when I'd been a remote worker for a long time and I was used to managing team experience you know, in how I would engage with them. They were all in an office or fairly central and I was the remote worker. And then all of a sudden, everybody was suddenly remote and people would say like, oh, you know, this is, this must be sort of normal for you because you're used to being a remote worker. I said, well, it's normal for me, but it's not normal for most people. 
because they are now treating remote work and remote leadership like it's the office. And all of a sudden I went from, you know, five hours a week of meetings to 19 hours a week of meetings because there was this right. culture of presence that yeah. was question, very, yeah. it's a very challenging thing. And then the leadership, if they're used to that culture of presence as part of the leadership, it was very difficult for them to adapt. And this is again, like when I think of the good leaders can be away from the direct experience, but not actually away from it. And I, I, maybe that's when I think of the large organization leaders that are empathetic, they don't have to sit beside the worker to understand the challenge of the worker and the needs of the worker and the capabilities of the worker. And the pandemic, I think, highlighted a lot of people who were leaders by time in the company, not by actual capability. Yeah, yeah, there was something about that. I mean, I've seen recently companies starting to put on LinkedIn. Um, this is a no week, no, a no meeting week. So in this week, no meetings, just get on I'm with your work. <laughs> I would love to go in and see, A, how do they define a meeting? Um, um, because in the virtual world, is that anything beyond a one-to-one? -one? Um, or does a one-to-one -one include that? But then what work actually fills the gap? Uh, when you take the meetings out, what happens to the productivity? What happens to um, the output from people? Uh, what happens to the creativity? What happens to the motivation um, and the energy within people? So if, you, if there were ways of tracking that, um, would be would be super interesting. But I also think I think your point is really interesting that we've have we just transferred in in going into the lockdown and remote working as it's now sticking in many places a culture of meetings into this online world. So people are in just back to back Zoom meetings all day rather than as you're saying if you're working from home working remotely you probably need about five hours to check in and but the rest of the time you're working remotely um and and that's that's the job you've got to do so i think there's some i don't think we were at the end of this process of of this of this transformation to come back to our theme in terms of the future of work um you know we've we've disconnected from the status quo that covid did that but we've not landed i think on what the norms are of you know when do you go in when do you not go in how many meetings a day is 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 optimal really it, and the what people didn't realize you know and i'm i've always it's odd because maybe i just think a little too hard about these things but they don't understand that being in a zoom meeting is cognitively tiring like much more so than being in a room full of people in a meeting because i actually studied for a long time the dynamics of physical placement at the table in a meeting room whether you know you when you sit up across from somebody there's a natural adversarial relationship when you sit beside somebody directly beside somebody there's a different relationship in how you collaborate versus somebody who's at the end of the table but you're looking down towards them and they need to look to, there's there's a reason boardroom tables are designed a certain way and that people sit at the head and at the side and at the middle there's a very ergonomic pattern to behavior well, in Zoom, we suddenly are, am I in the middle of the frame? You know, am I looking at the camera? Am I like, there are things we never had to think about. Like I'm a, I'm, I guess I'm technically, I'm a broadcaster now. Right? So I, I'm staring into the lens of a camera and I've, I've 
because I know I'm supposed to, but I often, you, know, you see me looking down. It's because I want to see you, like I want to see nonverbal cues and and I enjoy that part of the experience. We don't get that, you know, like nice. twisting a pen on the table, like little things that you would enjoy. You'd see somebody doing something and you'd say like, oh, that's neat. You, you know, where'd you learn to do that? Which would never come up in a Zoom meeting. You know, you, we've, we're missing so much of that nonverbal cue. I had a couple of funny experiences. One was at the beginning of, of moving on to Zoom and moving on, you know, the lockdown. Um, and I was in conversation with somebody I'd met a few years earlier. Um, and we, he came on and he said, are you okay? And I thought he was asking about COVID. He said, oh, fine. You know, none of the family's affected. It's all great. Thank you. No, no, no. He said, you've lost a lot of hair. And I suddenly realized I'm six foot 10 tall. Now, I don't come across as six foot 10. I said, no. I said, I've not lost a lot of hair. You just don't normally see me from this angle. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I, I run a leadership program at Oxford. And we've, we've had to do the whole front end virtually. So I got to know a group of 43 leaders from around the world, all through this medium. Um, and then they turned up in Oxford. Um, and the shock at, at my height, even though I told them, I said, guys, I told you I was six foot 10 coming in. Um, I think because in their mind's eye, they had this assumption of me as, you know, we're all normal on this. We're all, it's an, there's an equalizing effect. Um, and it took some of them a couple of hours to really just recognize. And it was more than, I mean, I often shock people when I stand up, but this was notably more so um, when they got to know me in the Zoom world and then they'd see me in, in this other world and then the world of you know real you know human interaction yeah i, I remember when i first saw one of your your ted talks and like there's no it's even there there's no frame of reference because you know no one knows how tall the stool is but i could immediately tell them like good good golly this man's a tall gentleman right <laughs> you know and and it's funny that another interesting thing i'll say it's it's good in a way that we've sort of democratized people's you know existence in a way that it does take away other things that may detract from it or, or not or distract more than, than detract i should say there's one fellow i worked with for for months you know and we, we you know he was a fantastic gentleman we got along great we did a lot of collaboration together and and then i saw a linkedin profile about him and it talked about him being a military veteran and i'd, I'd known he was a military vet and then I saw the picture of him standing, and he has no no legs at mid thigh below. He'd lost both his legs in 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 an explosion. And I thought, like, it's amazing that I've worked with this man for eight months, and I had no idea because I'd never, you'd never, you know, even if you stand up on camera, you wouldn't even get as low to be able to see that. And it was, it was fascinating to me that, you know, it you there's no focus on it. And that can be good or bad because, you know, there are things that you do want to, you know, bring attention to. But it was it was very interesting that it just sort of we could only focus on what we were working on, and it it take took take away sorry takes away stuff that may impact your belief in someone's capabilities. Yeah, yeah, I think there is something in all of this, and I've noticed as well that on certainly teaching on Zoom, um, because of the chat function, we get a more diverse set of people asking questions and making points. 
Um, there's a bit of a, a fight with getting hands up and, you know, you need a good person to work through that. But the chat function just broadens out the voices that can come into the conversation. I think particularly for the introverts um, um, who, you know, in my experience, the, it's the extroverts who often dominate when the professor asks, does anyone have any questions? Um, but then you've got that space for people who perhaps are not as confident or want to put a more thoughtful question into chat um, rather than make a more rambling point, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, especially you know, having given a lot of, of talks myself and, and you know, doing uh, you know, lecture work and at events, it's always funny when the person that stands up, like the first person that gets up, it's obvious I've, I've got a question for you. Well, like what, what you actually have is a statement yes. uh, and you're framing it with a question mark at the end. <laughs> and you can hear because there's the sort of the overly learned person that wants to make their point. They effectively want to like they want to sort of begin this dodge thrust parry of like I could be on stage. And it's I, I applaud it. Like I love that people are willing to do that. But then there's so many people in the room who, as you say, like they They've got fantastic insights and questions, but they're they just don't want to stand up. They don't want to look bad. They don't want to sound bad. They're you know. But in chat, it's a beautiful way to democratize access to yes. that intellectual back and forth, which I think is something we've really gained, and and I hope we hold on to. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the best tools that I found is Mentimeter, um, and this is within boardrooms it's within um executive teams um so i'll po i've got four quite challenging questions that i often use in discussions one is um tell me what you are not talking about but that you need to talk about tell me what you always talk about but never resolve tell me what spaces you need to create in this organization to have those conversations and what would be different in let's say one or three years time if those conversations led to the right decisions and the right actions. And what's interesting is when I ask the first question, tell me what you don't talk about that you need to talk about. If I'm in an executive team, half of them will look at the floor. Um, they can't hold my eye contact. The second question, tell me what you always talk about but never resolve, half of them will laugh because there's always things that, that are that. Now, they're really good questions. So I, I call them my diagnostic questions. But what I found is they're even better if you put them on Menti. Um, because people can just put stuff up and it's cathartic. It gets stuff onto the table. It gets out of the political angst. Um, you know, what are people going to think about me? How this could be seen as critical of the CEO. Um, um, and all those little questions or points come up on the, on the menti screen. Um, you can also get people to score stuff. So if I work with an executive team and they come up with a 100 day plan, we meet after 100 days. Um, and there were four elements in the plan. I get them to score themselves out of 10 on how well they did. Um, and, you know, and the little bar arrow moves up and the bar moves up and down as the scores come in. And it's a, it brings a ruthless and really important honesty, which I think is at the heart of some of the transformation we're talking about. So some of these digital tools, which you can now use embedded within a, a Zoom or alongside a Zoom uh, or Teams meeting can be really, really powerful. So I think there is something, as I say, we're learning to work work in this new digital world. 
there's an interesting I mean that that concept is something I've embraced and and one of the sort of leaders in that very open radical you know we talk about radical transparency and and such uh, uh Ray Dalio of course uh, author of the book Principles and uh at, at Bridgewater Capital and I've been lucky to be exposed to their like in-room experience where they literally they they record every meeting you know they everything is very open the downside to radical candor is often people believe it's a, a reason to be able to say anything that maybe some stuff should be uh not reworded i'll say not not unsaid but there's you know i've talked to many former bridgewater employees and they say you find people go from the idea of radical candor to becoming a radical arsehole you know because they they just freely say things that are negative not thinking of contextualizing it which yeah, exactly. is and so therefore it tough. needs the right values around it um it has yeah. to be done in a constructive way you know with the right questions with the right behaviors um for it to work um yeah i think you're right it, it can all all these things can be abused can't they i love your your questions because it is something even when i so one of the environmental impact right sustainability it it drips off the tongues of everybody these days right i sort of joke and say like if you want something to be more successful rub some sustainability on it right like if it suddenly gets this you know, increased focus as it should because we are we have an opportunity to continuously change the future with what we do immediately you know and and in the near future and we hear people, they say all these organizations have come up with these strategies and promises and 2030 impact statements and all these things they're doing. And then whenever I talk to an organization, I talk to a team, the question that I ask is, what have you done in the past 12 months towards these goals? And it's amazing to hear, like, everybody's like, yeah, we've got a promise. We're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. We're changing the way we we do business. We're changing the way we operate infrastructure. Let's say, like, tell, tell me precisely tactical things that you're doing that are working towards that goal. And as you mentioned before, people are like, there's a lot of navel gazing and, well, you know, we're, we're, we're coming up with a plan and, like, it's, but it's done in a constructive way that they say, hmm, you know, okay, what have we done? And they do find good things and they then start to think more strongly about what can we actually do to affect this, you know, this vision, this goal and, and, and tactically begin to take action towards it. Now I'm struck by the, how much innovation has actually taken place over the last two decades around things like alternatives to plastic. Now, all of it, if I get magazines delivered, they come in biodegradable plastic bags. So when I see a company not using that, I'm thinking, you've got no excuse. Um, right. There's other companies making it work cost-wise. The technology is there. Um, the, my house opposite where the building I'm in here, um, we've got, we rebuilt it, we put solar on the roof. Um, you know, on a day like today, as it is in the UK, we've got bright sunshine. That house is a net contributor to the grid, to the electricity grid. Um, you know, such is the case across large parts of the world with um, wind farms now. We have the technology. 
Um, the question is, are we going to sit on old business models with old products or are we going to accelerate and really lean into the transformation? And, and I think, to be honest, we're at a point now where if you don't, it's bad business practice. It's, it's not just bad for the environment, but it's bad for your shareholders. Um, and it's bad for um, you know, the future of your organization because you're just not going to be part of uh, the future and what the future looks like. And I think you know, it's taken pioneers like Elon Musk to kind of move the needle on, in the automotive space. Um, but you can see when someone like that does that, then the rest of the industry starts to really get its act together and go on, go on, that, on, that, on that transition. Um, so I think, you know, we are at a pivotal point in history where, in a sense, the commercial world and the environmental world and the human world are coalescing. Um, and the leaders are the ones that get all those three things and are able to drive forward with um, the right uh, products, technology, commercial solutions, which will generate the shareholder returns of tomorrow. I'm going to I'm going to put two personalities up and this is from my own experience and I'd love to get your thoughts on the sort of the the transformational leader and I've met a lot of CEOs and you know in everything from you know solopreneurs to you know small organizations to startups to massive organizations I've worked in major financial institutions for a long time and you would meet people who are good CEOs and they're often it's as if they were cut from a cloth and sort of printed you know and they have perfect answers which are no answers quite often they're media ready there's there is that sort of vision of that type of of leader and they they lead you know a a financial institution or a health you know care company and they're very good and they have to do there's a certain amount of that that's necessary. They can't just sort of go off the cuff and 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 be natural. But the tough part is, I would struggle with believing in them, in their people impact and their human centric impact because they're giving beautiful canned answers, almost political in the way of like, so how are we going to handle this problem? And then. They, they know how to do this so well. Well, first, let's look at the four macro trends that are facing the, and like, they've got, a, and the answer sounds fantastic. And then you see them 12 minutes later on CNBC giving exactly the same answer, right? I saw Elon Musk, sometimes a, you know, a polarizing figure, but when he was on actually a great uh, podcast with Lex Friedman, and and he he asked you know, Lex Friedman asked Elon, how do you how do you prepare for engineering something that's so massive that it's got a high chance for failure? And the first of all, one of the most fantastic interviewing techniques ever is he stared at him for twenty five seconds, I think, right. no words, and you could see Elon like he'd actually see his eyes like darting around. And he said, well, we 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 don't we don't architect we don't engineer for for failure we engineer for mitigation of failure right we we know that that failure is not an option right? it's ultimately that we, we we can't fail we have to we have to believe in the outcome we have to like and he the ability for him to not be media ready not be perfect diction 
And to let that air out, first of all, as an interviewer is like, this is the most fantastic thing I've ever seen. It's the best 20 seconds of an interview I've ever seen where we didn't just fight to fill dead air. But so there's the very dichotomous leadership styles in the business. I'm curious, how do those two personalities play out? I mean, I would put it this way. If you put both of those people in front of a panel of 1,000 members of the general public, which one would they trust more? Which one do they believe more? Which one would they like to hear more from? I suspect it's Elon Musk. Um, and I think we went through the whole world of the soundbite and the slick press operation, um, saying everything and saying nothing. And I think there's a craving for, you know, leaders to turn around and use phrases like, I don't know. Um, we're not there yet. Um, this is our aspiration, but we haven't yet thought through what the plan looks like to get there. Um, we don't plan for that, um, you know, and, and, and more honesty about things. Um, and I think COVID was a really good case, study, certainly at the level of political leaders and perhaps down in corporates as well. We didn't know so much at the beginning. You know, has there ever been a, a thing that hit the entire world where we just didn't know what the next four weeks were going to look like, the next two weeks? Um, we'd never locked down entire societies like this. Um, in it happened in in parts of the world, but never at such a global scale, um, and never never with such you know the industries that got stopped as 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 they did. Um, and we saw some people thrive in that, and some people didn't. But I think if you tried to, you know, almost be to take the approach you described in the first instance, you'd just come across as stupid. Um, and it, would, it was far better to be honest about the situation and honest about um, the potential uh, risks and consequences of what was being spoken about. How do we, do we find this or do we teach it, Andrew? Um, I suspect we can teach it. I suspect we can create the cultural conditions for it. Um, you know, I think the press has a responsibility here, but ultimately it's down to individuals who've got the courage of their convictions and the courage of their values, um, I think is probably at the heart of this. Now, obviously, you're you're entrenched in the in the research side as well as you know in in higher ed institutions. How do you find that those institutions are are catching up to industry and changes in in the world? Like one of the things that I've often struggled with, especially in higher ed, we you'd see like startup leadership courses. And it was, they were so disconnected from a real true startup leader experience, you know, or even in, you know, in telecom and, and technology, 
because the the tradition of education was deep research that led to curricula and and you know a syllabus that could be tested and trusted meant that it had to move at a slower pace but the world moved at a slower pace so in this day and age you know i've i think it's getting better but you're obviously much closer to it do you yeah. think that the education is catching up to the pace of the world i mean i can only speak for what we do in the business school at at oxford um and i think yes um, we've got a whole structure we've set up around entrepreneurship. A good proportion of our MBA students go into setting up entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and I think we've got a very good curriculum there. In terms of the leadership program I run, which is at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is people who are um, 20, 30 years into their careers, um, I think we're very much on the, the cutting edge of what's going on in the world um, you know, we have the benefit of having the Oxford Martin School in the university looking at the challenges of the 21st century. Um, we have the, we bring that onto our program. We have some brilliant research around scenario planning. We bring that onto our program. Um, we're doing cutting edge research around transformation where we're interviewing leaders who are at the forefront of that. We've got a, an 800 person, 1800 person survey globally around that as well. So. Um, I'm not suggesting we're perfect, but I certainly don't think we're sitting on our laurels with a, um, a curriculum that was from the, you know, the, you know, about three or four decades ago. That's definitely not the case. And one thing, I, you know, in the time we've got left, I want to explore an area of leadership success and leadership proof is not defined by successful times but i think adversity and also one of the challenges we have right is that it's we don't we don't introduce adversity into someone's experiences you know we sort of have helicopter parenting and that translates into easing them through public schooling and then getting them on to higher ed and you know, well, we're paying for this university, so I want my child to have a good experience. So they yell at the professors, you know, make sure you do a good job and, and stop making negative comments. We're seeing this sort of, this unfortunate sort of pervasive trend of the normalizing of, of existence, you know, taking the edges off a bit. But when you take those sharp edges off, then you get out of the school and the world has sharp edges. <laughs> but for leaders as well, right? leaders are often defined by getting through difficulty just like a marriage right like if, if everything goes every marriage goes great for five years and then you have children you're like oh boy this is difficult <laughs> yeah. now you really see the test of collaboration and partnership yeah i think you're onto something it's um it's a big topic and i don't claim to have all the answers what i'm minded of is my late grandmother who was a pharmacist during the Second World War. Um, and this was old school pharmacy where the pharmacy was full of jars of powders and potions. And um, a bomb went off um, near to where the pharmacist was. And she described how she was up to her knees suddenly in glass and powder. And I said, well, what did you do, Grandma? I said, well, darling, we just brushed it all away. And we opened up the next day. And to me, that's, that's my high watermark of resilience. 
um, you know, a bomb goes off, you're up to your knees in glass and whatever chemicals were in the pharmacy, you brush it all up. And then your duty is to have that shop open the next day, not just for the shop's sake, but for the community and for the whole war effort and for the country. And I do wonder if if we need adversity in life. And I, I, I suppose my I suppose it's only a question that generation that came out of the war, there was a resilience about them. And it's almost every generation it halves. And maybe what we're going through at the moment with a much more uncertain world is actually good for us. It's painful, we don't like it, um, but it, it, you know, it's a bit like a muscle, it needs to be stretched in order to grow. Um, and resilience, I think, is like a muscle. It needs to be stretched. And I wouldn't wish adversity on anybody, um, but there is something about it which is perhaps necessary. And if you think about, you know, the survival of the fittest and the evolutionary processes which we've come through, um, you know, that it, there's something about that as well. So I think you're right. And and companies which, I mean, one bit from our research we're finding is companies that do transformation well um, then are able to do transformation well. It has a has a virtuous cycle about it. And the opposite is true. You muck up a transformation, it has a vicious cycle about it. Yeah, that is the the interesting thing. It's sort of that, yeah, it it begets a better response in future. Uh, I mean, I think of like uh, Taleb's research and in, in concepts around uh, anti-fragility. Again, so you know, often difficult to quote him because he's a bit of a polarizing figure as well, but still the, that concept of natural exposure, you know, in the same way that our immune systems react, you know, by creating antigens to, you know, to okay. these, these situations, if you experience, you know, difficulty, and, and you you see the reaction to it and the response to it, then you have prepare, preparedness for the next time. And, and I often find, like personally, my favorite thing in a weird way is when it all goes sideways. Like I worked in data center operations and, and IT operations for years. And the moment that it would get out of control, I would just feel this calm of like, Okay, like let's let's immediately go into sort of triage. What can we do right now? What's necessary? Like, and you you were forced to immediately prioritize things. I don't like being in a well, let's develop a steering committee and then we'll set up some cadence calls and then we'll play like we'll set up a nine-month plan. Like if something like so, something just the power went off, what do we do right now? Like I can I thrive in that experience there. And I, I struggle with the very planful long-term views of things. So it's, there's definitely going to be personalities that can do both sides, but I often find the people that require the planning when something does go wrong there, they really struggle. And ultimately then they, they aren't able to contribute as well you know because i've never seen it and they're they they do not get that exposure to it it's it's a it's an interesting thing maybe because i threw myself at adversity a little early <laughs> i got used to it <laughs> yeah, it's a very very i think it's a really interesting concept and um you know it reminds me of just the the the, the human body you know if you sit in front of the tv all day and don't move you'll atrophy um you know if you get out on a bike go for a walk go for a run lift weights 
um, that stress that you put the body under um, stimulates growth. Um, and you're also more prepared if you ever need to really pedal fast to get out of trouble, run fast, walk fast. Um, you know, you've, you've done the preparation um, in that sense. Yeah, when I I I used to do uh, track cycling, uh, I, I I'm a long term long time cyclist, and and I started doing track cycling just for fun because I lived in an area where there was a velodrome and it was exciting, and so, and I would one of my favorite you know races was this or like timing was the flying two hundred, where you basically you you do like five laps and then you you say okay that's it I'm going to go on the next lap and you start at the top and then you immediately go to the bottom of the velodrome so you're going to full out for a two hundred meter lap. And the reason I was particularly good at it is because when I was a kid, I lived in the middle of nowhere on a farm and the person up the road for me had two German shepherds. Right. And so if I wanted to go for a bike ride, I'd have to like literally be like preparing for this ride. And then I would hear the barking and I would immediately have to just sprint because I had to outrun them before they could come to the road and catch up. And there are quite some dogs to outrun as well. They are fast little fiends, those ones. But like this, that that sort of natural exposure to difficulty and seeing my dad go through difficulty with work through the 80s, you know, when the tech sector fell apart and and seeing it go around, I that's why I look when I I look to leaders, you know, it's it's very easy for someone to be in a leadership role, but not a leadership function. And they're very different, like just being the team lead because you've been there longer than the rest of the developers does not actually make you a leader. It's often by title, not by function. And that's why I, I try and tell people that differentiate between the two. You deserve this role. You deserve this title. But when it comes down to it, there are different skills required for leadership. And, and I think that, especially in transformation, you know, you can't just look back and say, well, this is how it's been done for X number of years. We'll just use the playbook. I have to be able to have something suddenly shift and then be able to understand and get through it, not just for me, but for my entire team and my organization. Yeah, I think we're seeing that with um, President Zelensky in, in the Ukraine at the moment. Um, I mean, this guy was an actor and is now taking on arguably the most difficult leadership role um that's been seen for decades um in you know the most difficult of circumstances but the way in which he's working both locally and internationally in you know getting consensus getting coalition um, um is remarkable to see yeah i think that is the in adversity we have surprising leaders that rise to the top or surprising personalities that you discover through it and i and being able to see them as well in an organization, you know, is I think is part of that that empathetic need of to be able to say, like, as a leader, I can recognize other people that I can bring up, I can rely on, and I can empower them to do more. Uh, one last thing: decentralized leadership and giving up sort of control of it to a decentralized group how how are you finding that as a transformation in leadership styles so i will um i will rehearse a conversation i had with one of the executives i coach this guy is brilliant he's top quartile performer um 
And um, but with his brilliance comes a bit of a shadow in that he demands excellence from his team. And he does that through controlling. And we were I was coaching him on this and it had come through on a 360 uh, process he'd been through. And we went through the session and I thought the session was good, but I didn't feel we fully landed. And we were packing up our stuff about to go. And he said to me, so I guess, Andrew, what you're saying to me is and what I'm learning is it's about their energy and not mine. And I just said, you got it. How do you find a way to release their energy and you will get so much more out of it? Yes, you have to put a guiding framework around it because it's your vision. Um, but it's how do you engage and get their energy involved in this rather than a passive response? And he went away and did some stuff and came back and said, I just cannot believe the difference in the output I'm getting from people um, by kind of taking this mentality. So I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it centralized or decentralized. It's about energy. And as a leader, do you energize people? Do you bring their energy to the table? Um, or do you crush their energy with your energy? Um, so that's how I would how I would frame it. It's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, so what what are you looking forward to in the coming year as we sort of reopen the world a bit now of course you know given the the conflicts that are going on there's a you know, bigger challenges that we probably hard to weigh into what we believe the next 12 months will look like but as you head into the next batch of your work with research what, what is your goal to come out at the end of this year yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think a number of things. I'm looking forward to getting out and visiting the world again. Um, so I've done one international trip already. I've got another one in April. Um, I love people and I love, you know, you know, the being part of a business that takes me all over the world um, doing the work I do. Um, so to be able to be back on a plane visiting people is really great. I'm working with 160 leaders this year on the advanced management and leadership program that I'm working on, all of them face to face, all of them in Oxford. Um, that's going to be great. And we see huge transformation taking place in them um, and with the plans that they take back to their organizations. Um, and I have a couple of other projects. So I'm going to get to 21 podcasts this year. Um, of leaders who I think are making a transformative impact. I'm planning to write a book, 21 Leaders for the 21st Century. So I'm not sure that will be out this year, but it will certainly be written this year. Um, and more of the research around transformation, just taking that into the public domain as well. That's a fantastic set of goals. And as you said, yeah, getting getting back out and, and really engaging and collaborating, that's like you know, to back the earlier point we said, like, you know, people went to, went to many meetings and I often get asked, said, you love people. So you must like meetings. I said, no, I like collaboration, which is why I hate meetings. <laughs> like, meetings are not collaboration. They're when done right, they are, but they're seldom done right. And, and I think we've learned to value collaboration over meetings. And I've seen now more of people getting like, I'm going to focus on what matters. So that 60 minute meeting, it, when we're feel like we're done at 25 minutes, we just cut the call because we're done. And it's so good. Instead of before, it'd be like, okay, well, we've got some more time here. What else can we talk about? Like, no, no, no. Like, perfect. Let's just get on to 
something else and you know what we needed to get done is done and then there are those moments where we're getting back to yeah just chatting and 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 meeting in person and breaking bread and enjoying time together it's i look forward to it for sure yeah. for sure and i hope i bump into you at some point on the, in those travels around the world it would be fantastic i would really i would really take pleasure in it so dr andrew white if people do wish to reach you and get connected what's the best way they can do that uh, best way is on linkedin i'm very active um you can find me there if you just search for my name and oxford or you search for the leadership 2050 newsletter um and it'd be great to hear from folk yeah definitely i'll have links of course to both the newsletter and uh you know make sure that people can get access and to your podcast uh which is which is amazing like that's just such a beautiful opportunity now to bring the world those stories in that format and explore this and then as you said like now do you think like 20 30 years ago or even even a decade ago the idea of like being able to do a podcast and then take that content and hopefully like oh this is a book you know now people often say like well it's you've already done it all on the podcast like but there are many people who will not hear it nor will they want to do it in that format they like to read and so i love that you can take research practice beautiful work with the podcasts and the newsletter and then now bring it together in in book format i will be anxiously awaiting uh the release of the book for sure and, and uh, look forward to it but the book also gives an opportunity to do synthesis so it's not just going to be like a transcript of the podcast it's going right. to be what learning what are the cross-cutting themes um, so maybe you'll have me back at some point, Eric, and I can talk about what those findings were when you put the whole set of those podcasts together. Are there some, you know, the 10 themes, the 10 lessons that come out of that? Absolutely. Like any great special, you know, you, you come at the end gets you right back to the beginning. It's that whole thing. Like the executive summary is written last. People forget that sometimes they're like, this is, you now look over this body of work and said, ah, this is what we've actually done. And then to to see that thematically played out, uh, so good. Like I love the free form, like the podcast style is great because you can go in many directions and then you, you've like, okay, what did we actually discover? So, uh, but definitely it would be an honor to have you on again. Look forward to catching up, hopefully in real life and yep. uh, in travels, it'd be fantastic. So Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric.